And here we have a glimpse of one of the finest harmonies in the social world. I allude to leisure. Not that leisure, that the warlike and tyrannical classes arrange for themselves by the plunder of the workers, but that leisure which is the lawful and innocent fruit of past activity and economy. In expressing myself thus, I know that I shall shock many received ideas. But see, is not leisure an essential spring in the social machine? Without it, the world would never have had a Newton, a Pascal, a Fenelon. Mankind would have been ignorant of all arts, sciences, and of those wonderful inventions, prepared originally by investigations of mere curiosity. Thought would have been inert. Man would have made no progress. On the other hand, if leisure could only be explained by plunder and oppression, if it were a benefit which could only be enjoyed unjustly, and at the expense of others, there would be no middle path between these two evils. Either mankind would be reduced to the necessity of stagnating in a vegetable and stationary life, in eternal ignorance from the absence of wheels to its machines, or else it would have to acquire these wheels at the price of inevitable injustice, and would necessarily present the sad spectacle, in one form or another, of the anti-classification of human beings into masters and slaves. I defy anyone to show me, in this case, any other alternative. We should be compelled to contemplate the divine plan which governs society with the regret of thinking that it presents a deplorable chasm. The stimulus of progress would be forgotten, or, which is worse, this stimulus would be no other than injustice itself. But no, God has not left such a chasm in his work of love. We must take care not to disregard his wisdom and power. For those whose imperfect meditations cannot explain the lawfulness of leisure are very much like the astronomer, who said, at a certain point in the heavens there ought to exist a planet which will be at last discovered, for without it the celestial world is not harmony, but discord. Well, I say, that, if well understood, the history of my humble plane, although very modest, is sufficient to raise us to the contemplation of one of the most consoling, but least understood, of the social harmonies. Is it not true that we must choose between the denial, or the lawfulness of leisure? Thanks to rent and its natural duration, leisure may arise from labor and saving. It is a pleasing prospect, which every one may have in view, a noble recompense, to which each may aspire. It makes its appearance in the world, it distributes itself proportionately to the exercise of certain virtues, it opens all the avenues of intelligence, it ennobles, it raises the morals, it spiritualizes the soul of humanity, not only without laying any weight on those of our brethren whose lot in life devotes them to severe labor, but relieving them gradually from the heaviest and most repugnant part of this labor. It is enough that capitals should be formed, accumulated, multiplied, should be lent on conditions less and less burdensome, that they should descend, penetrate into every social circle, and that by an admirable progression, after having liberated the lenders, they should hasten the liberation of the borrowers themselves. For that end, the laws and customs 
ought to be favorable to economy, the source of capital. It is enough to say that the first of all these conditions is, not to alarm, to attack, to deny that which is the stimulus of saving and the reason of its existence, interest. As long as we see nothing passing from hand to hand, in the character of loan, but provisions, materials, instruments, things indispensable to the productiveness of labor itself, the idea thus far exhibited will not find many opponents. Who knows, even, that I may not be reproached for having made a great effort to burst what may be said to be an open door. But as soon as cash makes its appearance as the subject of the transaction, and it is this which appears most always, immediately a crowd of objections are raised. Money, it will be said, will not reproduce itself like your sack of corn. It does not assist labor like your plane. It does not afford an immediate satisfaction like your house. It is incapable by its nature of producing interest, of multiplying itself, and the remuneration it demands is a positive extortion. Who cannot see the sophistry of this? Who does not see that cash is only a transient form, which men give at the time to other values, to real objects of usefulness, for the sole object of facilitating their arrangements? In the midst of social complications, the man who is in a condition to lend scarcely ever has the exact thing which the borrower wants. James, it is true, has a plane. But perhaps William wants us all. They cannot negotiate. The transaction favorable to both cannot take place. And then what happens? It happens that James first exchanges his plane for money. He lends the money to William, and William exchanges the money for a saw. The transaction is no longer a simple one. It is decomposed into two parts, as I explained above in speaking of exchange. But, for all that, it has not changed its nature. It still contains all the elements of the direct loan. James has still got rid of a tool which was useful to him. William has still received an instrument which perfects his work and increases his profits. There is still a service rendered by the lender, which entitles him to receive an equivalent service from the borrower. This just balance is not the less established by free mutual bargaining. The very natural obligation to restore at the end of the term the entire value still constitutes the principle of the duration of interest. At the end of a year, says M. Thore, will you find an additional crown in a bag of a hundred pounds? No, certainly, if the borrower puts the bag of one hundred pounds on the shelf. In such a case, neither the plane nor the sack of corn would reproduce themselves. But it is not for the sake of leaving the money in the bag, nor the plane on the hook, that they are borrowed. The plane is borrowed to be used, or the money to procure a plane. And if it is clearly proved that this tool enables the borrower to obtain profits, which he would not have made without it, if it is proved that the lender has renounced creating for himself this excess of profits, we may understand how the stipulation of a part of this excess of profits in favor of the lender is equitable and lawful. Ignorance of the true part which cash plays in human transactions is the source of the most fatal errors.
I intend devoting an entire pamphlet to this subject. From what we may infer from the writings of M. Proudhon, that which has led him to think that gratuitous credit was a logical and definite consequence of social progress, is the observation of the phenomenon which shows a decreasing interest, almost in direct proportion to the rate of civilization. In barbarous times, it is, in fact, cent, percent, and more. Then it descends to eighty, sixty, fifty, forty, twenty, ten, five, four, and three percent. In Holland, it has even been as low as two percent. Hence it is concluded that, in proportion as society comes to perfection, it will descend to zero by the time civilization is complete. In other words, that which characterizes social perfection is the gratuitousness of credit. When therefore we shall have abolished interest, we shall have reached the last step of progress. This is mere sophistry, and as such, false arguing may contribute to render popular the unjust, dangerous, and destructive dogma that credit should be gratuitous, by representing it as coincident with social perfection, with the reader's permission, I will examine in a few words this new view of the question. What is interest? It is the service rendered, after a free bargain, by the borrower to the lender, in remuneration for the service he has received by the loan. By what law is the rate of these remunerative services established? By the general law which regulates the equivalent of all services, that is, by the law of supply and demand. The more easily a thing is procured, the smaller is the service rendered by yielding it or lending it. The man who gives me a glass of water in the Pyrenees does not render me so great a service as he who allows me one in the desert of Sahara. If there are many plains, sacks of corn, or houses in a country, the use of them is obtained, other things being equal, on more favorable conditions than if they were few, for the simple reason that the lender renders in this case a smaller relative service. It is not surprising, therefore, that the more abundant capitals are, the lower is the interest. Is this saying that it will ever reach zero? No. Because, I repeat, the principle of a remuneration is in the loan. To say that interest will be annihilated is to say there will never be any motive for saving, for denying ourselves, in order to form new capitals, nor even to preserve the old ones. In this case, the waste would immediately bring a void, and interest would directly reappear. In that, the nature of the services of which we are speaking does not differ from any other. Thanks to industrial progress, a pair of stockings, which used to be worth six francs, has successively been worth only four, three, and two. No one can say to what point this value will descend, but we can affirm that it will never reach zero, unless the stockings finish by producing themselves spontaneously. Why? Because the principle of remuneration is in labor, because he who works for another renders a service, and ought to receive a service. If no one is paid for stockings, they would cease to be made, and, with the scarcity, the price would not fail to reappear. The sophism which I am now combating has its roots in the infinite divisibility which belongs to value, as it does to matter. 
it appears at first paradoxical, but it is well known to all mathematicians that, through all eternity, fractions may be taken from a weight without the weight ever being annihilated. It is sufficient that each successive fraction be less than the preceding one, in a determined and regular proportion. There are countries where people apply themselves to increasing the size of horses or diminishing in sheep the size of the head. It is impossible to say precisely to what point they will arrive in this. No one can say that he has ever seen the largest horse or the smallest sheep's head that will ever appear in the world. But he may safely say that the size of horses will never attain to infinity, nor the heads of sheep to nothing. In the same way, no one can say to what point the price of stockings, nor the interest of capitals, will come down. But we may safely affirm, when we know the nature of things, that neither the one nor the other will ever arrive at zero. For labor and capital can no more live without recompense than a sheep without a head. The arguments of M. Proudhon reduce themselves, then, to this. Since the most skillful agriculturalists are those who have reduced the heads of sheep to the smallest size, we shall have arrived at the highest agricultural perfection when sheep have no longer any heads. Therefore, in order to realize the perfection, let us behead them. I have now done with this wearisome discussion. Why is it that the breath of false doctrine has made it needful to examine into the intimate nature of interest? I must not leave off without remarking upon a beautiful moral which may be drawn from this law. The depression of interest is proportioned to the abundance of capitals. This law being granted, if there is a class of men to whom it is more important than any other, that capitals be formed, accumulate, multiply, abound, and superabound, it is certainly the class which borrows them directly or indirectly. It is those men who operate upon materials, who gain assistance by instruments, who live upon provisions, produced and economized by other men. Imagine, in a vast and fertile valley, a population of a thousand inhabitants, destitute of all capital thus defined. It will assuredly perish by the pangs of hunger. Let us suppose a case hardly less cruel. Let us suppose that ten of these savages are provided with instruments and provisions sufficient to work and to live themselves until harvest time, as well as to remunerate the services of eighty laborers. The inevitable result will be the death of nine hundred human beings. It is clear, then, that since nine hundred and ninety men, urged by want, will crowd upon the supports, which would only maintain a hundred, the ten capitalists will be masters of the market. They will obtain labor on the hardest conditions, for they will put it up to auction, or the highest bidder. And observe this. If these capitalists entertain such pious sentiments as would induce them to impose personal privations on themselves in order to diminish the sufferings of some of their brethren, this generosity, which attaches to morality, will be as noble in its principle as useful in its effects. But, if duped by that false philosophy, which persons wish so inconsiderately to mingle with economic laws, they take to remunerating labor largely, far from doing good, 
they will do harm. They will give double wages, it may be, but then forty-five men will be better provided for, whilst forty-five others will come to augment the number of those who are sinking into the grave. Upon this supposition, it is not the lowering of wages which is the mischief. It is the scarcity of capital. Low wages are not the cause, but the effect of the evil. I may add that they are, to a certain extent, the remedy. It acts in this way. It distributes the burden of suffering as much as it can, and saves as many lives as a limited quantity of sustenance permits.